Hello, my name is Ran, and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode, my co-host Joe Stewart and I speak with inspiring movers, thinkers, and teachers about how they find their flow and much, much more. I'd like to start by honouring the traditional owners of the land on where this episode was recorded, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. As long-time listeners of the podcast may know, in 2015 I was diagnosed with stomach cancer and later on that year my stomach was removed. Yoga and other exercise played a huge role in my recovery and even though I had a wonderful medical team, we're actually surprised at how hard it was to find out information on the right type of movement and exercise to help with my recovery. Our guest this episode, Dr. Catherine Schmitz, has just published a fantastic book called Moving Through Cancer, which is going to really help people feel as well as possible for before, during and after treatment. Catherine is a clinical exercise oncology researcher, but has also had personal experience supporting her wife through cancer, including multiple surgeries and failed reconstructive surgeries on her nose. Moving through cancer gives very clear evidence-based guidance, but also heartfelt support for people living with cancer and their caregivers. Find out more at movingthroughcancer.com and we'll leave a link in the show notes. We had so many questions, so let's get into our conversation with Dr. Catherine Schmitz. All right, Catherine, thank you so much for speaking with us today. It's great to get the chance to speak with you. Now, I know you were just saying before we started recording that you looked up my cancer history. So this is obviously a subject that is very important to us as well as yourself. And I guess it feels like such an integration of your professional experiences as a clinical exercise oncology researcher and your personal experiences with your wife Sarah's cancer treatment and recovery. So I was just wondering if you'd like to share a little bit more about your motivation for writing this book. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me on. I'm always delighted to have an opportunity to talk about not just the book, but about this work. It is my professional mission that by the time I retire, I want us to be using exercise as standard of care in the setting of oncology. And so, so that is actually the motivation, the primary motivation for the book. You know, we, we have, you know, 15,000 scientific peer-reviewed publications in the area of exercise and cancer. There has been a, an exponential growth that's not hyperbolic. That's, you can go look it up and see that there's been an exponential growth in the number of clinical trials that have been done in human beings to document the efficacy of exercise interventions during and after cancer treatment. And yet, if you ask the average person on the street, you know, hey, you know, your Aunt Dottie has cancer. Do you think she ought to be doing any exercise? They would say, no, why? No, why would she do that? And and so we have a, a culture of, of rest, take it easy, don't push yourself in cancer. And my hope was that by writing this book, by translating the scientific evidence base into for a lay audience, that that we would start to make some headway and changing that culture. And, you know, there's a history here. I'm not the first person to think of this idea. We had evidence in the 1960s that we knew that exercise was really good for our hearts. 
And yet the population at large was was really not exercising much. And so there were some popular press books back in the 1970s that really turned the tide and helped society see that exercise was in fact good for your heart. So uh, the complete runner's book, I believe it was called Complete Book of Running, Jim Fix. And there was The Aerobics Revolution, which was by Kenneth Cooper. And those were credited with starting the, the exercise craze that occurred, I believe, in the U.S. and probably in Australia during that time frame. But, you know, we really, we had to learn it just for heart disease. And now apparently we need to learn it separately for cancer. And so one of the things that I really love how clearly you articulate is you'll go through the benefits of exercise and we'll definitely get into that, but you never hold it up as a cure or a treatment on its own. And in fact, most of what you focus on is how helpful it can be to help you manage the symptoms of chemotherapy and radiation therapy and you know the drugs that people might have to take. You bet. Exactly. So, yeah. So, I mean, there is there is an avenue of exercise oncology research that is, you know, really actively chasing the possibility, the very real possibility that by exercising as you go through your chemotherapy, as you receive your radiation, that in fact, it may potentiate the, the, the value of those treatments. And that's that's great. But we don't have that science done yet. And so we can't say it. And so in the same way that if anybody tells you, you know, if you eat more avocados, that's going to cure your cancer. That is a load of hooey is what my mother would call it. (laughs) (laughs) And so is the idea that exercise could cure any kind of cancer. But I think that I certainly know from our lived experience in our home, and I bet you all know this as well, you know, as you go through your cancer journey, you are not just your cancer, you know. In fact, the cancer cells represent a very small minority of a given person, even a person with metastatic disease. Even a person with metastatic disease has trillions of healthy cells, and those cells deserve as much attention as the cancerous cells. And by paying more attention to them, it's sort of like what you give energy to, you know, grows, right? What you pay attention to grows. Yeah, that's another thing that I really loved about your philosophy because so much of cancer treatment is quite passive, like you're putting your health and your trust in someone else's hands as you receive these treatments. But exercise is something that proactive that you can do for yourself. And I love how you recommend starting your exercise practice before you start the cancer treatment to kind of really build yourself up in terms of energy levels and muscle mass and to give you this access to peace of mind through this really intense time. Yes, and it is one one thing that you can do that is in your hands. So I, I'd like to say a few things about that if I could. One is that you know we actually do have scientific evidence to show us that this concept of prehabilitation, which is kind of the opposite of rehabilitation. So it's you know uh, building up your functional capacity, your muscle mass, your fitness prior to starting treatment for, frankly, anything. It doesn't even matter if it's cancer. But if you're going to be undergoing some kind of medical process that's going to take time and energy and is going to deplete you in some way, then getting yourself in the best possible shape you can be in before all of that starts is an excellent idea because we very predictably 
can can tell cancer patients that they are going to lose function and that they are going to lose muscle mass as they go through their treatment. And so it's kind of a way of, of kind of an insurance policy, building yourself up before you get there. Other thing that I want to say, though, is that I think that there's actually a little kind of a secret weapon in, in the, the program, the way that we've built it and what we recommend in the book, and that is the logging, the logging of symptoms and logging of what you can do with your exercise. And the reason why that becomes kind of a secret weapon is that you want to th- uh, think of professional athletes, Olympic athletes, they log what they do with their exercise and they use their bodies on a regular basis as an instrument. And as a result, they know what's going on and when something's off and when something is, when they're slow, when they're tired, they know what's different. When you are not doing exercise and when they, and they write it down and then they know they can go back and say, something's different here. Something's going on. Well, the same thing is true of a cancer patient. If you, as a cancer patient, are able to walk three miles on a Tuesday and on Thursday, you can only walk two blocks, something's going on. Something has changed. And if that that situation persists over the course of days and there hasn't been any sort of obvious reason for it, there wasn't any new round of chemotherapy or anything that happened, then that's something you can go back to your doctors with and say, something has really changed here. And the doctors will be happy to have that information and to look into it. But if you are not doing any exercise, then every every ache and pain can become, oh, what's that? What's that? Is that the cancer? What's that? What's happening? You know, it's like, it's like being in a haunted house, you know, only your body is the thing that's haunted. Yeah. So, right, right. So it's a way of kind of taking control of the narrative of the symptom, the story of the symptoms as you go through your cancer treatment. And I know that a symptom that really affects most people, I think, who have chemotherapy is how foggy headed you feel. And it's so hard when you have these appointments with your specialists that are often just like 10 minutes long and they're really bombarding you with all of this information. And sometimes we had the experience, like our specialist or run specialists were really lovely, but you just don't get time to ask all of the questions mm-hmm. that you were thinking about ahead of time. So kind of coming in with your own evidence and your own written information, I think would actually be quite helpful. I think that most specialists would really respond positively to that. Exactly. Exactly. If you have logged things over time and you can summarize and say, look, I know something's different here because, and you have a change in symptoms that persisted over time, then they're likely to look into it and offer help. So yeah, I think summarizing that information. The other thing that that we talk about in the book that I think you all probably experienced, as did Sarah and I, is the caregiver issue and the need for the caregiver to come along to all of those appointments because you know we we have documented evidence that if two people come into a doctor's appointment together they walk away with a greater understanding of what the physician is trying to communicate than if one person walks in with that same physician and and so that's why you know one of the things that I strongly strongly recommend in the book is that the caregivers follow the same exercise program and follow the logging and do everything step by step by step along with their patient. 
And that would be so helpful with motivation as well. Mm. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. So it's something and it's something that you can do together that isn't cancer. You know, I remember feeling with Sarah like, oh, my gosh, can we talk about something else? You know, <sighs> can we do something other than plan for the next visit to the doctor? Can we, you know, think about something else? And so exercise is something that I just hear it over and over again, over and over and over again, that it is one of the things that people feel can uh, help them to regain a sense of control over their lives as they're going through this process that feels so very out of control. And so that brings me to something else, which it's a really sensitive topic and it's definitely Oh, something that's come up with friends of mine and something that I've read about and with women especially, a lot of women's symptoms are kind of brushed over at a doctor's visit, especially if they're in a larger body. And I hear about people with polycystic ovaries and endometriosis who never really get the follow-up care and diagnosis that they need because the doctor just tells them, oh, you just need to lose some weight and you'll feel much better. Just exercise and eat better. So if you were in a larger body and you've been hearing that every time you go to the doctor and now you have this cancer diagnosis and you're being told that you just need to exercise, I could imagine that would really bring up a lot of feelings and be quite hard to hear. And I love how in the book you really go into how much this is about mental health, how much of this is about immunity, and it's not about how you look, it's about how you feel. But would you like to speak a little bit about this issue? Sure, absolutely. So first, I just want to like validate the, you know, doctors thinking you're crazy with the symptoms. I have Hashimoto's thyroiditis and I had, can't tell you how many times I have had conversations with medical professionals that have made me feel like I was cray cray. And, you know, so I just want to validate that I, I think that that does happen. And you're a doctor. <laughs> exactly. So help, you know, and in addition to that, you know, there is a, a tremendous amount of Twitter traffic on the topic of some of the symptoms that women cancer survivors experience that are poo-pooed or never talked about. Painful sex being a major issue that breast cancer survivors who are taking aromatase inhibitors deal with. And, you know, everybody gets kind of squirmy with the idea of wanting to talk about sex with their doctors. But when women bring it up, their doctors don't know what to do. They don't know what to say. And I would, I would say, I just, you know, <laughs> want to like grab the hand of women dealing with this or men as well dealing with this and say, just, you know, go forth mighty warrior and say what you've got to say loud, proud, clear, and keep asking till you get a good answer. <laughs> so, but you asked me a question that I do need to answer. And the question is, how does it feel to somebody who is living in a larger body? And, you know, they've had people, you know, yapping at them about exercise their whole lives. And now they have a cancer diagnosis and along comes Dr. Schmitz and says, you know, hey, you should be exercising. One of the things that is exceptionally important is to recognize that the amount of exercise that's being recommended here is the amount of exercise that makes sense for the person as they're in their particular place in their journey. And so when we say the word exercise, what can often be misunderstood is that what we're saying is, 
we want you to train for a marathon. We want you to run. We want you to walk three miles every day. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about, you know, if, if 10 minutes a day is what you're willing to do to stand up and boogie with some music on, that's fabulous. I'm happy to have that happen because the great news is, and there is actually a, a graph that shows this within the book, the greatest benefits of physical activity are incurred by those who go from doing nothing to those who, who are doing something. So just something, anything is better than nothing. So there's a lot of advice that says, you know, the evidence says that we want you to do 90 minutes a week, blah, blah, you know, all of the sort of what the recommendations are based on the peer-reviewed literature. But we, we know that going from sitting on the couch all day to doing something, even if it's walking to the mailbox and coming back, is better than sitting on the couch all day. And I like how you have that 10-minute goal or test in the book that's like if you don't feel like doing anything at all, just start, set yourself that 10-minute time, and if you feel better at the end of that, you might do more, but if you're not feeling it, then that's it, you're done for the day. Like that's totally fine. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. And and we actually have found over and over again in our, you know, I, I, you know, in the US, we don't have exercise professionals are not allied health professionals as they are in Australia, but in the sort of quote, cr clinical practice of exercise oncology, not just in my institution, but other places, you know, the, the general advice is do 10 minutes if you don't feel better than sit down. But what's remarkable is that in 90 plus percent of the time, you do feel better. Even if you're just doing a little bit of walking slowly, you do feel better. Because frankly, the human body is meant to be in motion until we are literally dead bodies. I mean, in the ICU, they move bodies. You know, we are meant to be in motion, all of us, our whole lives. I've, I've got a, a bit of a recollection rather than a actual question, but I, I just remember after my surgery, the, the surgeon sort of said I should do something like 20 laps of the ward every day. And, and the only problem with that was every time that I, I wanted to do my laps to get off the bed, I had to sort of recruit two or three nurses to help with all the the tubes and the devices <laughs> that I was attached to. So it was actually quite a um, difficult proposition to, to get moving, but I did manage to do it most of the time. Anyway, as I said, that wasn't it. Yes, well, then you are the second stomach cancer survivor that I know who did laps in the hospital and has lived way beyond what anybody said they would. I have a, a, a friend who lives actually in my, my small town in Pennsylvania who just kind of, it's sort of funny, he just kind of said, you know, I just kind of knew that I was supposed to be moving. And he would just grab all the various tubes and poles and, and make his way around the, the floor 20 times. I don't know what it is about 20, but there it is. <laughs> so some cancers have lifestyle factors, but even people who exercise regularly, eat well, and generally take good care of themselves can still get cancer. And the why me question definitely comes up. Would you like to speak about some ways to navigate these feelings? Oh, certainly, certainly. So actually, the last chapter of the book is about athletes with cancer, because there is so very little out there for them. In fact, the chapter was in, inspired by 
conversations with Keegan Randall, who is an American gold medal Olympian, and she in, in cross-country skiing. And, you know, she was already a phenom in Pyeongchang because she was a young mom as an Olympian. And then she and her partner, it was a, a duo event, and she and her partner won gold. And uh, three months later, she was diagnosed with an aggressive stage three breast cancer. And so, you know, certainly a lot of why me comes up with that. And so, you know, one of the things that we do in that last chapter is review the stories of, you know, we have like 12 athletes stories throughout the book, and there are six of them or so that are summarized in that last chapter. And one of the things that they talk about is this issue of, well, wait a minute, (laughs) you know, I was doing everything that I was supposed to do. And I think that one of the best weapons to, to, to deal with that besides, you know, any kind of, of therapy and talk therapy and mental health interventions that might be useful to any given person in that situation, which I heartily recommend, is to educate yourself about cancer biology. And the great news is that we are living in a time when YouTube videos are ubiquitous. And if you go onto YouTube and type in something like, you know, how does cancer spread? You'll find about six different lovely chalk talk videos that are, that are you know, understandable by the lay person that will explain all of the complexities of the way that cancer develops in the body. And I think by understanding, understanding that this can happen to anyone. And that the great news is that if you are experiencing this as someone who is an athlete, an Olympian even, then you are going to go through this process in a way that, that is likely to get you to the other side in better shape because you came into it in better shape. So three, three answers to your question. One, mental health professionals and you know, talking that through. I'm talking about the, my, why me. Two, edu- educate yourself. Three, refocus on the fact that you are going to get through your cancer treatment better because you were in great shape when you walked in the door. And your YouTube thought brings me to something else that really stood out for me in your book. Like I can tell that you're a clinical researcher because <laughs> you broke down how different studies work and what the definitions of different studies actually mean, because it sounds like, like us, you were inundated with well-meaning friends that just sent you the most fringe out there, not helpful miracle cures. So I love how you equip people to actually break that information down and assess what is actual evidence-based and what is just some kook on the internet. Yes. And, and this was really one of the reasons I felt so strongly about doing that is, is the, the chapter on nutrition, because I leaned heavily on my friend and colleague, Cindy Thompson from the University of Arizona to help with writing the chapter on nutrition. And nutri- nutrition information is ubiquitous on the internet and nutrition information for cancer patients is even that much more <laughs> ubiquitous on the internet. And a lot of it is really very faulty information. And so it was really, really important to me in particular, what, for the exercise research, certainly, but also for the nutritional research, that people understand the difference between 
the results from something like the Nurses Health Study, which is a, an enormous quarter of a million nurses, you know, give their blood and answer surveys periodically. And, you know, a cohort study like that is not the same thing as a randomized controlled trial. And understanding the hierarchy in science is is crucial, as well as understanding what my uh, mentor, my, you know, one of my oldest, dearest friends and mentors, Henry Blackburn calls the three beauties, which is the, the clinic, the clinical research, the bench, so uh, animal research and basic science, and the population research, the epidemiology. So you really look, you want to look as carefully as possible if somebody tells you, you know, that you really ought to be eating, you know, almond milk every day, you know, 10,000 calories of it or something crazy. You want to look to see if there is research at all three of those levels. That's when we really say, ah, now we really have something. That is when we conclude that there is causation and we need to really recommend an intervention like exercise. And the other thing I love about the book is how you don't just lump every cancer in together. Like you really differentiate between the different cancer types and the different treatment types and what's going to work for each person. Because I know with our experience with Varan, the amount of people that sent us articles on the benefits of fasting when he's about <laughs> to get his stomach removed and the <laughs> advice that we're receiving is like, you're going to lose a lot of weight. Like you really need to build up your reserves right. now. And I know that there have been some studies that have kind of shown benefits from fasting during chemotherapy treatment, but that's not for everyone. And that's definitely not for this type of cancer. Mm, I think someone suggested I go on a, a month long yeah, like a water fast in Bali. Oh my gosh, <laughs> yeah. right? That's a terrible idea. Uh, worst possible suggestion. <laughs> yeah, no, and they're they're not you know they're not seeing it in uh, in context. And yeah, actually, I I don't know whether you all are aware that I I built a website that goes with with the book. It's movingthroughcancer.com, and there actually is exercise advice that is you know for specific different cancer types. I think I, I got to about 11 of them before I ran out of steam and wanted to get this website up and running and I'll add to it over time. But, you know, the advice to somebody who goes through head and neck cancer and, you know, what their particular treatment trajectory is likely to be is going to be distinct from somebody who goes through bladder cancer, for example. Yeah, absolutely. And I really, um, what stood out for me, especially as reading your book, is how different the effects are for someone who's had something like breast cancer, which has a really long-term hormone therapy treatment after their surgery and after their chemotherapy and how different their symptoms can be. Like I had the experience as a Pilates teacher of someone coming to my class and she used to be a dancer. She'd put on a lot of weight from her treatment, which she was really uncomfortable with. And her knees were really sore as well. She was getting a lot of joint pain from her treatment as well. So she had this background of loving to move and loving exercise and not being able to do any of those movements anymore and was really feeling depressed about it. So I love how you target the exercises that you give. So I know that reading that she would be able to find things that she could do. Yeah, she would. She would. And that those aromatase inhibitor arthralgias that you're talking about are so very, very common. And we do have clinical trial evidence to support the idea that exercise is, is very frustrating because, you know, there's, there's two symptoms in particular 
in the setting of, of cancer care that we know, I mean, we have like such gorgeous data that tell us that for those arthralgias with aromatase inhibitors that breast cancer patients take and for cancer-related fatigue, we know that exercise is the very best thing that you could do for those symptoms. And it's very uh, antithetical, right? It's, it's the, the problem is that, you know, <laughs> you say this to somebody who's experiencing the symptom and they say, so what part of I'm in pain do you not understand right now? And I do understand, I absolutely understand. But if you are in a situation where you have the choice to be in pain and I can make your pain a little bit better, but you're still going to be in pain, do you want to feel a little bit better? Or do you want to keep feeling in pain and just keep feeling in pain and it doesn't get better? So those are your, those are unfortunately, those are your awful choices when you're dealing with those aromatase inhibitors and dealing with cancer related fatigue. Yeah. And I love how you put the chair exercises in the book as well. And they're probably on your website too, because they're so accessible for people. And just to have that sense of being able to start moving your body in a way that's accessible for today and kind of getting a little bit of those feel-good benefits going from the exercise and from the movement would be so helpful. Yes. And I got to tell you, I mean, we actually, we have, I think about three chair exercise videos, you know, just YouTube videos, but they're gathered on the website that are, that are available. And you know, I decided I would I would sort of try one of these, you know, early on in the process of saying, hmm, are we really going to recommend chair exercise? You know, you'd be surprised how much exercise you can get and how sweaty you can get just sitting in a chair. And so one of the nice things about chair exercise is that there are people who have joint issues and who, you know, don't feel comfortable with, you know, with weight bearing exercise. In addition, there are a lot of cancer patients and survivors who are dealing with chemotherapy induced peripheral neuropathy and who don't feel steady on their feet. In addition, there's also, of course, that whole, you know, subset of patients and survivors who are dealing with bone metastases and for whom it's not really safe for them to be doing weight bearing exercise, you know, if they have a lytic lesion in the legs in particular. And so all of that put together, chair exercise turns out to be quite a good idea and and can be fairly, fairly rigorous. Yeah, absolutely. And there's another couple of benefits as well. Like a lot of people who've had gastrectomy surgery have reflux problems. So being upright in the chair is great for that. And I've also, like I've taught a few people chair yoga as part of their recovery especially if someone's feeling kind of dizzy or frail, that they feel quite safe in the chair, like they're not going to yes. worry about falling over. And especially me teaching on Zoom, I have the carer in the room, but I feel safe that they're steady in their chair, much more so than if I was trying to get them to get up and down off the ground or do something where they might have a fall. Yes. And you've actually, you've opened uh, a topic that I think is really, really important, and that is that people don't feel safe. And I think that it is, you know, going back to something we talked about much earlier, one of the issues with exercise during and after cancer treatment is that people, the culture tells them that they shouldn't be, you know, like, you know, you, you like close your eyes, think of a person who has, you know, is going, undergoing cancer treatment. You probably picture someone, you know, who's either bald or has a scarf in their head or a hat on their head. They're sitting in a big chair with an IV in their arm and a blanket over their legs, right? 
They're not, they're certainly not moving, right? And they're not being told by their doctors that they should move. And so if they're not being told by the doctors that they should move, then they have the question of like, is it safe? Is it safe for me to do this? You know, and if they don't know that it's safe, then there's that question of like, okay, well, how do I do this? If you're telling me now that I should, how do I do this in a way that I will feel safe? And if that's chair exercise, more power to it. Hi, I hope you're enjoying our conversation with Dr. Catherine Smits. When it comes to exercise and movement with specialised populations, sometimes it really helps to have some versatile and portable props, especially if you're practising in a chair. We recommend the Makalu, which is a stack of different size nesting domes that magnetise to a wooden base as a way of adding some extra strengthening and proprioceptive challenges to movements. And it was actually designed with peripheral neuropathy in mind. You can use our discount code MACFLOW, which is capital letters M-A-K-F-L-O-W, to get a 10% discount at makalu.com. We regularly share chair yoga and other yoga videos in our online library if you want to check out some of the different ways that it can be used in practice. All those links will be in our show notes. And so the not being told by your doctors is something that really stood out to me because you wrote about all of the studies and how many of those specialists believe that it's beneficial to exercise, but it seems like there's this issue that it's really no one's department. So your surgeon will talk to you about surgery, your radiation oncologist will talk to you about radiation, but they just cover their own little area of specialty. So no one gets to those holistic benefits of something like exercise and movement, or they feel like they don't want to overload the patient with another task. Would you like to speak a little bit about like the communication challenges and how this message just isn't getting translated to the patient? Yes, I would very much like this is this is a, a major topic of of you know what I'm what I'm interested in researching for the rest of my career so that we can solve it. The very first thing I want to say is that there's a an issue in the field of medical oncology that contributes to this. And that is that we have a mismatch of the number of cancer patients with the number of medical oncologists. We have a number of, the number of cancer patients is going up uh, with the graying of society, but we are having fewer medical oncologists over years. And so, so we actually have a, a, a lack of providers. And so what that means is that every single provider is having to talk faster, right? They need to get through more in the in the same day of work that they have. That's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is that I am very confident that medical, surgical, and radiation oncologists and oncology nurses are eager for their patients to be as well as they can be and to and to and that they, they want them to exercise for the most part. All of the surveys that I have seen indicate that the vast majority of these professionals are very much in favor of exercise. That said, it is really unfair for us to then lay it at their feet when they are trying to get through all of what they're trying to get through in the short time that they have with the patient. Hey, do this one other thing. Because the truth is that there's not just one other thing. There's about 15 other things. There are all kinds of things that these clinicians need to cover with these patients at any given time. Fertility preservation, financial distress, psychosocial distress, cold caps, you know, how, how you are going to maintain your hair, 
as you go through your uh, your chemotherapy. There's about 15 different things that you could list out that are evidence-based, some of them more vital than others by one person's estimation of things, but others more vital than the first, right? It just depends on what you think is most important. So, so I think that what we need is we need to figure out a new flow of activities in the oncology clinics so that it is possible for the uh, supportive staff in the oncology clinics to make clear that the doctor wants the patient to be physically active and to make an active referral of the patient to a high-quality exercise oncology program. And that if there is any kind of reason why the person shouldn't be going to uh, an exercise program because they have really bad peripheral neuropathy or the aromatase inhibitor problem or whatever the issue might be, that that person is automatically referred to outpatient rehabilitation. But I, I I think that, are you all familiar with, do you know what a Rube Goldberg machine is? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So Rube Goldberg machines, like you, you know, you tip the ball and your hand moves at the beginning, but then the ball goes and it goes and it goes and it goes and it always automatically lands like in the basketball hoop or whatever. Right. We need to invent a Rube Goldberg machine for exercise oncology. We need to invent some way so that it is just, you know, all the doctor has to say is, yep, this person should go, right? And the whole system is built so that the patient gets the referral and understands that the doctor thinks that this is an important part of their care. So so I guess one of the things that I guess I'm trying, I didn't say out, out loud that I will now is, I think it's exceedingly important that we not blame the providers. I think the providers are doing their level best. We need to reinvent healthcare delivery in a way that it is easy for these providers to do what they know is the right thing to do. And I think part of that as well is mental health support and perhaps mental health support for the providers too, because they're (laughs) dealing with some of the hardest conversations you could ever have with another human being. And the human being in question is dealing with the most intense thing that's probably happened to them in their life facing death. And like mental health referral is not automatic as part of that process. It's either something you have to ask for or mm, something you have to yeah, seek out. Yeah, to ask for it, yeah. Right, right. Well, there is actually a lovely story in the U.S. about that. And it is, to me, a what I hope is, is a um, predictive story for exercise oncology. And the story is that there was a, you know, a really, really talented researcher and clinician by the name of Jimmy Holland who was Memorial Sloan and Kettering. And, and she, you know, saw clearly from her research that the patients who were experiencing a lot of psychosocial issues, a lot of psychological issues, and that, that weren't de- dealt with, weren't doing as well, that they did not survive their cancers as well, that they did not withstand their treatments as well. And so she went on this campaign to get screening and referral for psychosocial distress to be standard of care. And she succeeded in doing so by going through a, an organization called the American College of Surgeons 
Commission on Cancer, ACOS, COC, and they basically, you know, rule the day in a lot of major cancer centers around the United States. And she got a standard written that required that all cancer centers, all cancer clinics, ask patients about psychosocial distress. And if they found that the person had elevated distress, that there be a place for them to make referrals. And you know, guess what they found? 100% of people were in distress. Right, exactly. <laughs> they found that everybody was in distress and that they didn't have enough places to send people. And so it started a second wave of, oh my, we have to build these clinics. We have to provide services for all of these patients. Well, that's what I would like to see happen with exercise and cancer. And so this is a very exercise-focused question, and I love how you address this because we're both yoga teachers, and you mentioned as well that you love yoga, but that's not the type of exercise that you're talking about here. The things that you saw really getting the best results from were strength training and aerobic exercise. Would you like to talk a little bit more about that and the specific benefits that you notice with those types of movements? Sure, absolutely. So first I do want to give the caveat that it's not that yoga isn't beneficial. It's that we haven't had enough studies about yoga that I can point to them as a scientist and say, yoga is beneficial. So the absence of evidence is not the same as the as evidence of absence of effect. Okay. So with that as the caveat, where we do have the evidence is uh, aerobic exercise and resistance training. And so I can divide the benefits of these types of exercise into primary and secondary prevention of cancer and into and then separately into how they help for people who are currently undergoing treatment or recently completed their treatment. So when we look at the primary and secondary prevention, it's really aerobic exercise that we have the evidence from because the majority of the studies that have been done in this area are cohort and case control studies, very large population-based studies. They're not randomized controlled trials. But on the basis of literally tens of thousands of cancer cases and hundreds of thousands of people that have been followed around the world, we do have really great confidence that exercise prevents about seven common types of cancer, including stomach, Interesting, interestingly. So breast and colon and stomach and endometrial and ooh, uh, it's, like, it's like, you know what, it's, it's like the dwarves. You go to try to name them and you always forget. You know, there's always one dwarf that like just doesn't come back to you. Anyway, I'll I'll think of what it is while we're talking. So so the flip side, and oh, and I should say that the aerobic exercise is what we really know about with regard to the recurrence of cancer as well. And the data on the benefits of aerobic exercise and reducing recurrence of cancer is stunning. It is stunning in that the magnitude of the effect is anywhere from 20 to 50%, depending on the study that we, that we look at. And there are three cancers for which we see really striking evidence that being more physically active reduces the risk of recurrence and death from breast, colon, and prostate cancers. So it doesn't mean that there isn't the possibility of improvement in, in, in survival from other cancers, but those are the three that we have the evidence for at this time. Now, when we move into the patients and the patient, you know, either during their cancer treatment or after the treatment is over and they're recovering from their treatment, 
we actually have large, really rigorously performed systematic review on 16 different health outcomes that are related to cancer and, and maybe cause some of them are, you know, cancer side effects. And this review of these 16 outcomes was done by this large expert panel that came together from the American College of Sports Medicine and 17 other major medical organizations. And, you know, the, the review basically said, what we're interested in is knowing if there is sufficient evidence from randomized controlled trials that we can prescribe exercise precisely like a medicine. So not just, hey, go get some exercise, but I want you to exercise three times a week at 60% of your maximal capacity for 30 minutes every session, right? So that's what I mean by the specificity of the, of the exercise. And we were able to conclude that we could make that kind of medicine-like prescription for eight different cancer side effects and symptoms and outcomes. And they are cancer-related fatigue, not surprisingly, physical function, which is how we define our ability to pick things up and carry them around, including our children and anything else you might need to pick up and carry around, including yourself. Let's see, what else? Bone health. So osteoporosis is an outcome here. Sleep, anxiety, depression, and breast cancer-related lymphedema. So those are the outcomes that we know for sure are helped by being more physically active. And we have developed a, an infographic that helps the average person to understand what the specific recommendation is. So for example, in the case of breast cancer-related lymphedema, it is only resistance training that is helpful, not aerobic exercise. So twice-weekly strength training is helpful for prevention of lymphedema and helping with symptoms of lymphedema. Whereas for cancer-related fatigue, it's you know aerobic exercise or resistance or the combination that's helpful. So the type of exercise and the dose of exercise that is recommended is extremely specific for each of these outcomes. Yeah, that's um, that's really interesting. I guess on a personal note, and I guess it wasn't a uh, prescribed by a physician, but I was I feel very lucky that I had Joe to sort of help me work out some kind of exercise routine. And you know, I, I stuck to that three times a week. It was a mix of yoga, Pilates and a bit of resistance training as well. And I definitely feel that that helped me through the whole process. Yeah, I think I think I would have been a little bit lost without it, actually. I did want to actually go back to your question or your the idea of us uh, at psychosocial distress. And I just sort of I feel like part of that is is in the way that I guess medical people communicate with you because I I do remember personally we we had a very um, a very bad experience. Uh, essentially, I had had a test and the test came back showing that I had the cancer had moved into my lungs, so I was, I was theoretically uh, inoperable. That's a terminal diagnosis. Yeah, yeah, and I don't think the news was delivered particularly well. And he also said that the test was basically 100% accurate. And it turned out that it wasn't the case at all. But there were a couple of weeks there where I was 
pretty much sure that um, I was going to die. I guess, yeah, what, what do you think about the role that physicians play in, in this type of, I guess, aspect of cancer? I think they play a huge role and I think they play a huge role. And I think that they, that, you know, you should know that they get zero training in this. That showed. <laughs> right. It showed. Right. So let me give you, let me give you like, I'll, I'll just, you know, personal experience with this. I used to teach a, a class when I was on the faculty at the university of Pennsylvania in can in uh, cancer epidemiology. And all of my students were oncologists. And I, I had a colleague who I asked to come in every year to give a talk about his research. And it just so happened that he was the go-to guy at the Children's Hospital of, of Pennsylvania, of, of Philadelphia, sorry, when you had to have somebody sit down with parents and say, we think your child is going to die. And because he was, he had a, you know, was a psychologist, he had a lot of training and was, was very good at this. And, you know, not surprisingly, one of the years that he gave the guest lecture, he was really late. And I was like, oh, man, you know, this is embarrassing. What am I going to do? You know, and and but but we waited, we waited and he, he finally arrived and he explained what he was doing. And he said to this group, this this, you know, room full of oncologists, one of them said, well, you know, how do you talk about the H word, H word being hospice? And, and he said, well, I don't call, I don't use the H word. And he said, but really what you need is to talk to the patient very directly about what it is that's happening with them and find out what they want. And you need to, you know, you need, and he went on to start talking about talking about death and this whole room of oncologists like their eyes immediately went to the floor. Nobody could look at him. Nobody could talk. Nobody could ask a question. So I changed the lecture that he gave from that year on. And I realized that I was doing this crazy, crazy service <laughs> for these oncologists because this was the only time in their training that they were getting a three-hour lecture on how to talk to people about death and dying. Mm-hmm. And it's mind blowing. It's mind blowing that that's not a part of their training, especially in that field where it's going to come up. And also knowing that the mental health health outcomes for doctors are really bad. So just imagine the stress and the strain they would be under to be completely unequipped for delivering that type of news. And just the fact that that's not a part of their training at all, except in your class. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do know of at least one program out there that is very, very specifically bringing mindfulness-based stress reduction training to healthcare professionals. So I think that there are some efforts, but I think that they are kind of cottage industry efforts and not wholesale, you know, across the board. This is how we should train our physicians. And I noticed in your book as well that Sarah actually had kind of an opposite side of that same issue where her outcomes really weren't properly explained. Like each time you thought the procedure was going to be quite minor and it was actually really major. So you just felt blindsided every step along the way because her (laughs) specialists were not equipped to actually say the reality. 
Well, they weren't equipped, but they also, to a certain extent, they didn't know. And so, so one of the things that we sort of, that I, and I really danced around about you know, like, you know, how am I going to, you know, I don't want to, you know, blame the clinician, but at the same time, I want to call the clinician out and just, you know, how do I write this? And the, the truth is that what they didn't do a good job of was they didn't, and I don't think clinicians do a good job of this in general, what they didn't do a good job of was to tell us that they, that they didn't know things. You know, they, they led us to believe that, you know, okay, you know, we know what this is. We know what is going to happen. You're going to have surgery and then you're going to have radiation, right? And that's what they led us to believe. That's what's going to happen. You're going to have this surgery. You're going to have radiation, right? What they didn't tell us was if we don't get clear margins in the surgery, you're probably going to have chemotherapy. Okay. Now, should they have told us that? Or should they not have told us that? Because if they had told us that, then we're really worried about the clear margins from the surgery, right? And most of the time they get clear margins. Just didn't happen to be in Sarah's case. They told us, okay, we're gonna have you, you're gonna now I will say with the with the reconstruction process, they there was a lot of mismanagement there. A lot of mismanagement. Every single time we went in for a surgery, we had a conversation and we said, he said, okay, what I'm going to do is ABC. doesn't even matter what, what ABC was, right? ABC. I'm going to do ABC. And then he would come out of surgery and he would say, I did QRS. And, <laughs> and we would say, what? Okay. Why? You know? And he would say, oh, because the tissue was not ready for ABC. I had to do QRS, right? But he never once said, well, you know, my plan is to do ABC, but if the tissue isn't okay, then I'm going to have to do something else, right? And that happened five times. And then they finally said to her, after telling her, like leading her to believe that she was going to have a perfect, pert little nose, that it was like, you know, well, you just had a nose job, you know, you know, you're going to have a perfect, pert little nose. They got the last surgery. She came back for, you know, after the last surgery. And he said, yeah, I'm sorry, Sarah, there's nothing else I can do for you. And she doesn't really have a nose. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of communication training that could happen. And I don't think that, I think they get training on how to actually cut the nose off. <laughs> <laughs> Not kidding. As opposed to how to talk to somebody about the fact that you're going to cut their whole nose off. And also, I think a lot of their communication training is about being in control and being direct when actually there's a lot of uncertainty in a lot of these procedures and it might feel unprofessional to say, we're not sure what this outcome is going to be. It could go in these different directions. And I guess you have to wonder if there's a bit of ego involved as well. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I will tell you that I, you know, the conversations that I've had with clinicians about things like this tell me that they are tortured by this stuff that they that they really want very badly to get it right. Mm. I, I, yeah, I get that. I guess just to change the subject a little bit. So now we're we're living in the age of COVID, and I'm just wondering: does this put a bit of a spanner of the works when it comes to cancer treatment? You know, I guess it means a lot of hospitals have less availability or less capacity. So, yeah, what what do you think of the effects of COVID and and this process? Well, there are very definitely, you know, it's it's very observable that people's cancer treatments are being delayed. 
and altered because hospital staff and resources are you know needed for uh, for COVID cases instead. So you know, I mean, much less any kind of elective surgeries, but you know, cancer surgeries are being delayed because of COVID. Like they need those intensive care beds that that person would need for a week or so after their surgery for someone who needs it right now. Right. Or they, they just need the hospital bed, not even the intensive care bed. They need the hospital bed. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, uh, it's problematic. Please get vaccinated. Please, please mm, get definitely. vaccinated. Yeah, yes. <laughs> we are. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. And your booster, right? Well, I'm still waiting for my second dose in Melbourne. Australia is pretty slow on the vaccination rollout, unfortunately. Okay. I've, I've had two and that's that's pretty much because of my medical history. So sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. So I guess we're, we're nearly out of time, but we do have one more question that we generally ask all our guests and it might be very difficult to do, but I'm going to give it a try anyway. So I guess if you could distill everything that you've learned and everything that you teach down to one core essence, what do you think that one thing would be? Exercise for people living with and beyond cancer gives you your life back. Beautiful. And I think that really is summed up in your book. It's such an amazing compilation of your professional work and your personal journey with Sarah and like your deep passion for this work and for making people's lives better as they have their diagnosis, have their treatment. And something else that you really acknowledge as well is the long-term after effects. And I think that's so key. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I, you know, I think I really mean it that, you know, our bodies are meant to be in motion. Nobody benefits from being on the couch all day. Nobody, 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 nobody. Even if you're, you know, you walk for five minutes and throw up and, and then walk some more, that's better than sitting on the couch all day. Beautiful. Well, yeah, thank you so much for um, writing this amazing book and thank you for speaking with us again. Thank you. Yeah, this is going to help so many people. <laughs> well, thank you for the invitation. Thank you so much. This was really, really fun. Great to talk to you guys. And I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Catherine Schmiss as much as we did. I'd just like to thank our Patreon supporters for their help with this episode. If you'd like to support us, just go to patreon.com slash flowartistpodcast. You can help out from just $1 a month. Our theme song is Baby Robots by GoSoul and is used with permission. Get his music from gosoul.bandcamp.com. Thank you so, so much for listening. We really appreciate you spending your precious time with us. Aroha nui. Big, big love. <laughs>